Chapter One, Part One of Life of Henry David Thoreau. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Phyllis Vincelli. Chapter One, Part One. Of the various perils which beset the path of our modern civilization, none perhaps are more subtle and dangerous than those which may be summed up under the term artificiality. As life becomes more complex, and men of culture are withdrawn farther and farther from touch with wild nature, there is a corresponding sacrifice of hardihood and independence. There is less individuality, less mastery over circumstance, less probity of conduct and candor of speaking, less faith in one's self and in the leading of one's destiny. These may be but incidental disadvantages, outweighed by the general improvement in the condition of the race, yet they are serious enough to demand thoughtful recognition and to make us welcome any signs of a contrary tendency. The enormous increase which the present age has witnessed in material wealth and mechanical invention has accentuated both the magnitude of the evil and the necessity of relieving it. A century ago, it might have occurred to those who were living on the threshold of the new era, and who foresaw, as some must have foreseen, the coming rush of civilization, with its fretful hurry and bustle of innumerable distractions, to wonder whether the very prevalence of the malady would work out its own reformation. Must society ever be divorced from simplicity? Must intellect and wildness be incompatible? Must we lose in the deterioration of the physical senses what we gain in mental culture? Must perfect communion with nature be impossible? Or would there arise a man capable of showing us in his own character, whatever its shortcomings and limitations, that it is still possible and profitable to live, as the Stoics strove to live, in accordance with nature, with absolute serenity and self-possession, to follow out one's own ideal in spite of every obstacle, with unfaltering devotion, and so to simplify one's life and clarify one's senses as to master many of the inner secrets of that book of nature which to most men remains unintelligible and unread. Such anticipation, if we may imagine it to have been entertained, was amply fulfilled in the life and character of Henry David Thoreau. In the year 1823, there was living in the village of Concord, Massachusetts, with his wife and four children, one John Thoreau, a pencil maker by employment, whose father, 
a younger son in a well-to-do Jersey family of French extraction, had emigrated from St. Helier to New England in 1773, married a Scotch wife, established a mercantile business in Boston, and died at Concord in 1801. Footnote. It is said that the name Thoreau was common in the annals of Tours several hundred years ago. The earliest known ancestors of Henry Thoreau are his great-grandparents, Philip Thoreau and Marie La Galais, the parents of the emigrant above mentioned. The family is now extinct both in Jersey and New England. End footnote. John Thoreau, who at the time of which I speak was thirty-six years old, had begun life as a merchant, but having failed in business and lost whatever property he inherited from his father, he had recently turned his attention to pencil-making, a trade which had been introduced into Concord some ten or twelve years earlier, from which he not only derived a competent livelihood, but gained distinction by the excellence of his workmanship. He is described by those who knew him as a small, quiet, plodding, unobtrusive man, thoroughly genuine and reliable, occupying himself for the most part in his own business, though he could be friendly and sociable when occasion invited. His wife, whose maiden name was Cynthia Dunbar, was very different in character, being remarkable, like the other members of her family, for her keen dramatic humor and intellectual sprightliness. She was tall, handsome, quick-witted. She had a good voice and sang well, and often monopolized the conversation by her unfailing flow of talk. Footnote. Her father, the Reverend Asa Dunbar of Keene, New Hampshire, died in 1787, and his widow afterwards married a Concord farmer named Minot. In Mrs. Thoreau's brother, Charles Dunbar, the ready wit, characteristic of the Dunbar family, had run to eccentricity. He led a strange, vagabond life roving from town to town, and winning a pot-house notoriety by his waggish speeches and dexterity in wrestling and conjuring. End footnote. Henry David Thoreau, the third child of these parents, was born at Concord, 12th of July, 1817, in a quaint old-fashioned house on the Virginia Road, surrounded by pleasant orchards and peat meadows, and close to an extensive tract known as Bedford Levels. In this house, the home of his grandmother, Mrs. Minot, he lived for eight months. Then, for another period of the same length in a house on the Lexington Road, on the outskirts of the village. In 1818, his parents left Concord for five years, and lived first at Chelmsford, a town ten miles distant, and afterwards at Boston, where Henry first went to school. 
but as their business did not prosper in either place the family returned in eighteen twenty three to concord which thenceforth continued to be their home they little thought however that the name of concord and the name of thoreau were destined in later years to be so inseparably associated this village of concord which lies twenty miles to the northwest of boston and must be distinguished from the capital of new hampshire which bears the same name was at the time of henry thoreau's boyhood the centre of a scattered township of about two thousand inhabitants under the name of musketaquid it had been an ancient settlement of the indians its attraction in earlier as in later ages consisting in the rich meadows which border the musketaquid or grass ground river when i walk in the fields of concord so thoreau afterwards wrote in his diary i forget that this which is now concord was once musketaquid everywhere in the fields in the corn and grain land the earth is strewn with the relics of a race which has vanished as completely as if trodden in with the earth wherever i go i tread in the tracks of the indian in sixteen thirty five the district was purchased from the indians by the massachusetts colony which there made its first inland plantation and it was from the peaceful settlement then effected that the place received its name of concord at the beginning of the present century concord though not yet associated with any of the great literary names which have since made it famous was not unknown to the world for there in seventeen seventy five had been struck the first blow for american independence when the english troops after some desultory fighting were repulsed by the rebel farmers lafayette visited concord in eighteen twenty four and the following year half a century after the battle there was a celebration of that event at which henry thoreau then a child of seven is said to have been present the inhabitants of concord were mostly agriculturists sturdy farmers living in comfortable old-fashioned homesteads but there was a considerable sprinkling also of mechanics and men of business and as the town lay on the high road between the uplands of new hampshire and the port of boston it was to some extent a centre of trade it was also at that time one of the places appointed for the holding of the county assizes a frank and natural equality was one of the traditional characteristics of concord society extreme wealth and extreme poverty being alike rare so that its citizens a plain and frugal folk quite unostentatious in their manners and mode of life yet prizing literature and learning were saved from the evils of either luxury or destitution while the well-known concord families the hosmers and barretts and haywoods 
preserved and handed on from generation to generation their sterling hereditary qualities. The two leading personages at Concord at the time of Henry Thoreau's birth, and for many years afterwards, were Dr. Ripley, the Unitarian pastor of the village, who lived in the old manse which Hawthorne subsequently inhabited, and Samuel Hoare, a man of senatorial rank who exemplified in his character some of the best New England qualities of dignity, justice, and simplicity. Dr. Ripley, quaint, humorous, and patriarchal, was minister at Concord for over half a century, and was regarded by his parishioners as a friend and teacher to whom they could look for advice and assistance in all matters that concerned them. Henry Thoreau was one of the many Concord children who had been baptized by him into the Unitarian Church, and in whose welfare the kindly pastor continued to take an affectionate interest. The dominant features of the natural scenery of Concord are its waters and its woods. It has been described as a village surrounded by tracts of woodland and meadows, abounding in convenient yet retired paths for walking. The two rivers of Concord, the slow-flowing Musketaquid and the swifter Assabet, which meet close to the north of the village, have been immortalized by both Hawthorne and Thoreau. The sluggish artery of the Concord Meadows, says the latter, steals thus unobserved through the town without a murmur or a pulse-beat, its general course from southwest to northeast, and its length about fifty miles, a huge volume of matter ceaselessly rolling through the plains and valleys of the substantial earth with the moccasined tread of an Indian warrior, making haste from the high places of the earth to its ancient reservoir. Footnote. Introduction to The Weak. Compare Hawthorne's account in Mosses from an Old Manse. End footnote. As for the Assabet, we have it on Hawthorne's authority that a lovelier stream than this, for a mile above its junction with the Concord, never flowed on earth, nowhere indeed except to lave the interior regions of a poet's imagination. Of the ponds, Walden, Sandy, and White Pond to the south of the village, and Bateman's to the north, are the most considerable. Moreover, after the heavy rains, which are usual at two periods of the year, the lowlands adjacent to the river are converted by the floods into a chain of shallow lakes, so that there is no portion of the township of Concord which is not more or less in proximity to some lake or stream. And if well watered, Concord is also well wooded, its sandy soil being covered in almost every direction by thick groves of oak, pine, chestnut, maple, and other forest trees, which even to this day 
retain much of their primeval severity. I saw nothing wilder, wrote a visitor to Concord, among the unbroken solitudes of the upper Ottawa tributaries than these woods that fringe the bank of Walden. Footnote. Grant Allen in Fortnightly Review, May 1888. End footnote. Not a human habitation, not a cleared farm, not a sign of life or civilized occupation anywhere broke the unvaried expanse of wild woodland. The hills which surround Concord, Anursic, Neshawtuck, Balls Hill, Brister's Hill, and the rest, are of no great height, but they command fine prospects, westward and northward, in the direction of loftier ranges, Wachusett, Monadnock, and the White Mountains of New Hampshire. The Rose Country, says a picturesque writer, has the broad effects and simple elements that compose well in the best landscape art. Footnote. A.L. in the New York Evening Post, October 10th, 1890. End footnote. It is a quiet bit of country that, under the seeing eye, can be made to yield a store of happiness. Its resources for the naturalist, at first scarcely suspected, are practically inexhaustible. It is not tame, as an English landscape is tame. It keeps its memories and traditions of the red man along with his flint flakes and arrowheads, and its birds and wild flowers are varied and abundant. A country of noble trees, wide meadow expanses, and the little river, quiet almost to stagnation, with just current enough to keep it pure, in places much overgrown with water-weed, in other places thick-strewn with lily-pads, the banks umbrageous and grassy, fringed with ferns and wild-flowers, are here and there jutting into a point of rocks, or expanding into placid lake-like stretches. These are the main elements of Thoreau's country. Then we must add a clean, sandy soil, through which water percolates with great rapidity, leaving paths pleasant to the feet. Then come the low ranges of hills, the marshes, the ponds, and the forests, fit home for a rich, varied wild flora. And then the weather influences must be taken into account. This small district of country, though it feels the breath of the sea twenty miles away, is still somewhat sheltered from the asperities of the east wind. The summer nights are cool and refreshing, though the day may have a heart of fire, and the autumn has stretches of bright, cool, resplendent weather. Owing to the dry soil, the ways seem more open and cheery in winter than in other places, and the roads are good for walking all the year round. Among such scenes and surroundings did Henry Thoreau grow up 
and receive his earliest impressions of nature and society. From the first he was inured to a hardy outdoor life, driving his mother's cow to pasture when he was a child of six, and going barefoot like the other village boys. School games and athletic sports formed no part of his youthful amusements, but at as early an age as ten or twelve, after the habit of New England boys, he was permitted to shoulder a fowling piece or fishing rod and betake himself to the wildest and most solitary recesses of wood or river. The waterside seems to have had a special fascination for him at an early date, one of his childish reminiscences being a visit to Walden Pond, which excited a desire in him to live there, and as he grew older he was fond of bathing and boating on the Concord River in company with his schoolmates, making himself acquainted with all the rocks and soundings of that placid stream. Now and then the news would spread like wildfire that a canal boat, laden with lime or bricks or iron ore, was gliding mysteriously along the river, and the village children would eagerly flock out to gaze with wonder on these fabulous rivermen who came and went so unaccountably. Still more interesting were the annual visits of the remnants of some Indian tribes, who used to pitch their tents in the rich meadows which had belonged of old to their forefathers, and there string their beads and weave their baskets, or initiate the Concord youths into the art of paddling an Indian canoe. We are surprised to learn that, as a child, Henry Thoreau was afraid of thunderstorms, and at such times would creep to his father for protection. For most of the anecdotes related of his school days are indicative of the fearlessness, self-reliance, and laconic brevity of speech for which he was afterwards conspicuous. At the age of three years, he was informed that, like the godly men of whom he read in his religious exercise book, he too would some day have to die. He received the news with equanimity, asserting, however, that he did not want to go to heaven because he could not carry his sled with him, for the boys said it was not shod with iron and therefore not worth a cent a characteristic renouncement of a paradise in which, as he surmised, outer appearances would be unduly regarded. When charged with taking a knife belonging to another boy, he replied briefly, I did not take it, and steadily refused to exculpate himself by further explanation until after the true offender was discovered. All being made clear, the natural inquiry put to him was why he did not sooner explain himself. I did not take it, was again his reply. When ten years old, he carried some pet chickens for sale to a neighboring innkeeper, who, in order to return the basket promptly, took them out one by one and wrung their necks before the eyes of the boy 
who let no word betray the agony of his outraged feelings. His gravity had already earned him among his schoolfellows the title of the judge, of that sprightliness of intellect which subsequently showed itself in such a marked degree in his conversation and writings, there seems at this time to have been no trace, at any rate no early instance has been recorded. End of chapter 1, part 1「Chapter One, Part Two of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One, Part Two. On the important question of Thoreau's hereditary traits, I quote the following from an interesting article by Dr. S. A. Jones on Thoreau's inheritance. His inheritance included also the endowment of heredity, a potent factor which has not yet had just and due consideration from any of his biographers. A gentleman who attended the school kept by the Thoreau brothers once wrote to me, Henry Thoreau was not a superior scion upon an inferior stock, neither was he begotten by a northwest wind, as many have supposed. There were good and sufficient reasons for the Thoreau children's love of, and marked taste for, botany and natural history. John Thoreau and his wife were to be seen, year after year, enjoying the pleasures of nature in their various seasons, on the banks of the Assabet, at Fairhaven, Lees Hill, Walden, and elsewhere, and this too without neglecting the various duties of their humble sphere. Indeed, such was Mrs. Thoreau's passion for these rambles that one of her children narrowly escaped being born in a favorite haunt on Lees Hill. The father was a very cautious and secretive man, a close observer, methodical and deliberate in action, and he produced excellent results. His marbled paper and his pencils were the best in the market, while his stove polish and his plumbago for electrotyping have never to my knowledge been excelled. He was a French gentleman rather than a Yankee, and once having his confidence you had a very shrewd and companionable friend to commune with. Then, when there were no unauthorized listeners about, the otherwise quiet man, who had such a faculty for minding his own business, would sit with you by the stove in his little shop and chat most delightfully. Footnote. The Inlander, February 1893. The preponderance of the Saxon, the maternal element in Henry's character, was a matter of observation and comment among his townsfolk. He was a complete New Englander, and prided himself on being autochthonous a concord. I think the characteristics which chiefly impressed those of us who knew Mrs. Thoreau, 
says one who was intimate with her, were the activity of her mind and the wideness of her sympathy. She was an excellent mother and housewife. In the midst of poverty, she brought up her children to all the amenities of life, and if she had but a crust of bread for dinner, she would see that it was properly served. She was never so poor or so busy that she did not find means of helping those poorer than herself. Footnote. E.M.F. in Boston Daily Advertiser, February 18th, 1883. I must plead guilty to having done less than justice to Thoreau's parents in the first edition of this book. End footnote. We see, then, that Thoreau was indebted to both his parents for some of his best qualities, to his mother for a quick-witted spirit and passionate love of nature, to his father for the counterbalance of a calm, sane, industrious temperament, with absolute honesty of purpose and performance. The marriage of quiet John Thoreau and the vivacious Cynthia Dunbar was a happy conjunction, so it has been well said, of diverse temperaments and opposite traits, of substantial virtues and of simple habits, and with bodies undefiled by luxury and minds unsophisticated by social dissimulation. They made a home and its lowly hearth became a shrine whose incense brought blessings to their offspring. It must be added that they entered with such zeal into the agitation for the abolition of slavery that when that question began to be debated in Massachusetts, they were willing to make their house a rendezvous for abolitionist conspirators. The younger members of the Thoreau household were also possessed of an unusual strength of will and seriousness of purpose. Both his sister Helen and his brother John, who were Henry's elders by five and three years respectively, were earnest and lovable natures. So, too, was his younger sister Sophia, and it was remarked by those friends who were intimately associated with the family that they each possessed a distinctive and unmistakable personality. At this period, when new ideas were permeating American society and preparing men's minds for the great intellectual and social awakening that was shortly to follow, the Thoreaus had won general respect among their neighbors at Concord by their humanity, thoughtfulness, and unaffected simplicity of living. Here is an early glimpse of Thoreau. It seems that in 1828 they had a Concord Academic Debating Society, and the report of the secretary for November 5, 1828, runs thus. The discussion of the questions selected for debate next followed. Is a good memory preferable to a good understanding in order to be a distinguished scholar at school? E. Wright, affirmative. Henry Thoreau, negative. The affirmative disputant, through negligence, had prepared nothing for debate, and the negative, not much more. 
Accordingly, no other member speaking, the president decided in the negative. His decision was confirmed by a majority of four. In 1833, when 16 years old, Henry Thoreau was sent to Harvard University, where he occupied a room in Hollis Hall, in which, if we may trust a chance reference in one of his volumes, he experienced the inconvenience of many and noisy neighbors and a residence in the fourth story. Footnote. He is entered in the Harvard Register as he was christened, David Henry Thoreau, but he afterwards put the more familiar name first. End footnote. He had been prepared for college at the Concord Academy, an excellent school famous for its successful teaching of Greek, where he had already exhibited a strong liking for the classics, though his reading was not confined to the prescribed course, but began to embrace a considerable extent of English literature. His expenses at Harvard were a serious matter in a family whose means were very limited. The difficulty, however, was surmounted partly by his own carefulness and economy, partly by the help of his aunts and his elder sister, herself a schoolteacher at this time. During the college vacations he took pupils, or assisted in school-teaching in several country towns, one of those engagements being at Canton, near Boston, where in 1835, his sophomore year, he boarded and studied German with a minister named Brownson, at the same time teaching in the district school. Meantime, his interests at Harvard were being promoted by his future friend, R. W. Emerson, who in 1834 had gone to live at Concord, where his forefathers had held the ministry for generations. Emerson presumably was informed by Dr. Ripley, with whom he was staying, of the promise shown by Thoreau and it seems to have been due to his good offices that the young man received some small pecuniary assistance from the beneficiary funds of the college. We are fortunate in having a graphic account of Thoreau's personal appearance and mode of life at Harvard from the pen of one of his classmates. Footnote. Reverend John Weiss, Christian Examiner, Boston, July 1865. End footnote. It seems that he passed for nothing among his companions, taking little share in their studies and amusements, shunning their oyster suppers and wine parties, and mysteriously disappearing from the scene when, as occasionally happened, the course of college discipline was temporarily interrupted by a rebellion. He was cold and unimpressible. The touch of his hand was moist and indifferent, as if he had taken up something when he saw your hand coming and caught your grasp upon it. How the prominent gray-blue eyes seemed to rove down the path just in advance of his feet, as his grave Indian stride carried him down to University Hall. He did not care for people. 
his classmates seemed very remote this reverie hung always about him and not so loosely as the odd garments which the pious household care furnished thought had not yet awakened his countenance it was serene but rather dull rather plodding his lips were not yet firm there was almost a look of smug satisfaction lurking round their corners it is plain now that he was preparing to hold his future views with great setness and personal appreciation of their importance his nose was prominent but its curve fell forward without firmness over the upper lip and we remember him as looking very much like some egyptian sculptures of faces large-featured but brooding immobile fixed in a mystic egoism yet his eyes were sometimes searching as if he had dropped or expected to find something in fact his eyes seldom left the ground even in his most earnest conversations with you he would smile to hear the word collegiate career applied to the reserve and inaptness of his college life he was not signalized by the plentiful distribution of the parts and honors which fall to the successful student of his private tastes there is little of consequence to recall except that he was devoted to the old english literature and had a good many volumes of the poetry from gower and chaucer down through the era of elizabeth in this mind he worked with a quiet enthusiasm these traits of aloofness and self-seclusion are attributed by his classmate not to any conceit or superciliousness still less to shyness but to a sort of homely complacency which though quite natural and inevitable had the effect of putting him out of sympathy with his surroundings at harvard his complacency was perfectly satisfied with its own ungraciousness because that was essential to its private business this determined concentration on his own life course was as we shall see very characteristic of thoreau in his mature career and it is interesting to find that it was thus early developed in college thoreau had made no great impression says another of his contemporaries he was far from being distinguished as a scholar was not known to have any literary tastes was never a contributor to the college periodical harvardania he was not conspicuous in any of the literary or scientific societies of the undergraduates and withal was of an unsocial disposition and kept himself very much aloof from his classmates footnote the rev d g haskins in his ralph waldo emerson boston eighteen eighty seven and footnote at the time we graduated i doubt whether any of his acquaintances regarded him as giving promise of future distinction against this however must be set what the historian of thoreau's college class wrote in eighteen eighty seven 
that notwithstanding what he himself says of his entrance to the college and the impression that one gets from some of his biographers that he was rather under the ban of the authorities thoreau maintained a very fair rank in his class and at graduation took part in a conference on the commercial spirit of modern times footnote memorials of the class of eighteen thirty seven by henry williams boston eighteen eighty seven and footnote this was somewhat of an honor and there is no reason to suppose that thoreau had any part in the rebellions and other irregularities of the students as has sometimes been suggested we can well believe however that his strong individualist tendencies had even now begun to manifest themselves indeed it is apparent from his youthful themes that he was already a fearless thinker and questioner on various matters social and religious a quality which would not be likely to conciliate the good opinion of the college authorities his integrity however and high moral principle were clearly recognized and from the first he seems to have practiced a simple and abstemious mode of living he had been so wisely nourished at the collegiate fount says channing as to come forth undissipated not digging his grave in tobacco and coffee those two perfect causes of paralysis thoreau has himself stated that he never smoked anything more noxious than dried lily stems from which indulgence he had a faint recollection of deriving pleasure before he was a man. It has been said that Thoreau's debt to his college was important, but this is a statement which it will be prudent to accept with some reservation. It is true that although not successful in the ordinary sense of the word, he had become a good classical scholar and had derived intellectual benefit from the teaching of at least one of the lecturers, Professor Channing, whose nephew, Ellery Channing, afterwards became his most intimate friend. He himself says, in a letter of 1843, that what he learned in college was chiefly to express himself, and this, in his case, was certainly no unimportant gift but on the whole we shall probably be safe in concluding that the advantages which thoreau obtained from his college career were mainly of the indirect kind and that he profited far less by the actual instruction there given him than by the opportunities afforded for wide reading and self-culture meanwhile his love of outdoor life and open-air pursuits had in no wise diminished during his residence at Harvard. On the contrary, he was as diligent a student of natural history as of rhetoric or mathematics, and felt as much veneration for Indian relics as for Greek classics. More so, if we are to believe what he wrote subsequently in a letter to the class secretary. Though bodily I have been a member of Harvard University, 
heart and soul i have been far away among the scenes of my boyhood those hours that should have been devoted to study have been spent in scouring the woods and exploring the lakes and streams of my native village immured within the dark but classic walls of a stoughton or a hollis my spirit yearned for the sympathy of my old and almost forgotten friend nature it is stated that his first experiment in camping out took place during his senior year at college when he made an excursion of this sort to lincoln pond a few miles from walden on this occasion his companion was stern's wheeler one of his schoolmates both at concord and harvard whose early death in eighteen forty three is lamented in one of his letters but undoubtedly it was in his conception of ethical principles together with a kind of mystic nature worship that he had made the greatest progress towards maturity of thought we are told that he resolved at an early period of his life probably during his college career to read no book take no walk undertake no enterprise but such as he could endure to give an account of to himself and live thus deliberately for the most part when only seventeen he had become convinced of the utility of keeping a private journal or record of thoughts feelings studies and daily experience with a view to settling accounts with one's mind an introspective tendency which grew stronger and stronger with increasing years already too his intense ideality of temperament was clearly developing itself while still a boy he had written that the principle which prompts us to pay an involuntary homage to the infinite the incomprehensible the sublime forms the very basis of our religion it was his delight as he tells us to monopolize a little gothic window overlooking the garden at the back of his father's house which stood on the main street of concord village and there especially on sunday afternoons to muse in undisturbed reverie often in the early dawn he would stroll with his brother john to whom he was devotedly attached to the cliffs a rocky ridge which overhangs the river concord and there watch the sunrise over the expanse of fairhaven bay his devotion to concord was already a fixed and unalterable sentiment which sometimes showed him in a softer and more emotional mood than was usual to his self-repressed nature while he was still at college he happened one day to ask his mother what profession she would advise him to choose she replied that he could buckle on his knapsack and roam abroad to seek his fortune in the world the tears rose to his eyes at this suggestion and his sister helen who was standing by tenderly put her arm round him and said no henry you shall not go you shall stay at home and live with us 
so fully were these words verified that twenty years later we find him still living at concord and writing to one of his friends that he had a real genius for staying at home End of chapter one chapter two part one of life of henry david thoreau by henry salt this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter two part one when thoreau left the university he was just twenty years old and the first question which occupied his mind was naturally the choice of a profession by which he might gain his living like the other members of his family he became a teacher an occupation of which he had as we have seen already made trial during his vacations at college in the spring of eighteen thirty eight he went on a visit to maine where his mother had relatives on the lookout for some educational appointment bearing with him testimonials signed by dr ripley r w emerson and the president of harvard university all of whom spoke in the highest terms of his intellectual and moral character he seems however to have been unsuccessful in this particular quest for in the same year we find him engaged with his brother in keeping the academy at concord the private school for boys and girls at which he himself had been educated and which had been established about twenty years before by some of the leading concord citizens how long thoreau held this post is not precisely recorded but it is evident that he did not find his tutorial position at all congenial to his tastes indeed it is difficult nowadays to conceive of this champion of individuality discharging the functions of teacher under the supervision of a visiting committee if we may trust the humorous account given by ellery channing of thoreau's pedagogic experiences the immediate cause of the resignation of his office was the question of corporal punishment he at first announced that he should not flog but should substitute the punishment of talking morals to his pupils but after a time one of the school committee remonstrated against this novel system and protested that the welfare of the school was being endangered by the undue leniency of its master mr thoreau must use the ferrule or the school would spoil so he did by feraling six of his pupils after school one of whom was the maid-servant in his own house but it did not suit well with his conscience and he reported to the committee that he should no longer keep their school as they interfered with his arrangements school-keeping seems to have been practiced by thoreau for about two years in all then as more congenial subjects occupied his attention he gave it up altogether and betook himself to his foreordained and inevitable profession the study of nature 
the ferrule of the schoolmaster was laid by for the herbarium and spyglass of the poet-naturalist. This brings us to the mention of a movement which was gathering force in New England during Thoreau's youth and early manhood, and had a marked influence on the whole development of his character. Transcendentalism, i.e. the study of the pure reason which transcends the finite senses, the feeling of the infinite, as Emerson expressed it, which originated in the philosophy of Kant and was revived by Coleridge and Carlyle in England, had now begun to be a disturbing and regenerating power in American thought, and to find its chief exponents in such men as George Ripley, Alcott, and Emerson. Though there had long before been a vein of native transcendentalist doctrine in the quietism and Quakerism of Penn, John Woolman, and others, this transcendentalism of New England was simply a fresh outburst of ideal philosophy. It was a renaissance in religion, morals, art, and politics a period of spiritual questioning and awakening. The transcendental movement, says Lowell, was the Protestant spirit of Puritanism seeking a new outlet and an escape from forms and creeds which compressed rather than expressed it. The apostles of the newness, or realists, as the transcendentalists were variously styled, aimed at a return from conventionality to nature, from artifice to simplicity. They held that every one should not only think for himself, but should labor with his own hands. And the exaltation of the individual, as opposed to the state and the territorial immensity of America, was one of their most cherished purposes." it was not to be expected that this transcendentalist revival which by its very nature was vague misty and ill-defined would be exempt from the extravagances and absurdities which almost inevitably accompany such a movement but if certain members of the transcendentalist party were deservedly the butt for a good deal of ridicule the main purpose of the movement was too important to be laughed down, and fully justified itself in the light of subsequent events. Originating in the meetings of a few friends, of whom Emerson was one, at George Ripley's house in Boston, this New England transcendentalism proved to be one of the most powerful forces in American literature and politics. Concord, where Thoreau was born and bred, became, as we shall see, one of the centers of the transcendental movement, which aimed at carrying its doctrines into every branch of social life. It is not surprising, therefore, that a mind already naturally predisposed to idealism should have been strongly affected by the congenial gospel of an inner intellectual awakening. His diaries, poems, and early letters are full of this transcendental tone, and it was doubtless in great part 
owing to the same influence that he felt so marked a disinclination to settle down in the ordinary groove of business. It was not only schoolkeeping that was given up by Thoreau under the stress of this new faith. In 1838, or thereabouts, while he was still a schoolteacher, he had quietly but definitely seceded from Dr. Ripley's congregation to the grief and disappointment it must be feared of the venerable pastor, who looked with suspicion and alarm on the gospel of the transcendentalists, which he saw promulgated all around him towards the close of his long career. The youthful secessionist had, moreover, run the risk of imprisonment by his refusal to pay the church tax, on the ground that he did not see why the schoolmaster should support the priest more than the priest the schoolmaster. The difficulty was finally settled by his signing a statement in which he testified that he was not a member of any congregational body that so fearless and independent a thinker as Thoreau should maintain his adherence to any religious formula was not to be expected, for the very reason that the natural piety of his mind was so simple and sincere. If a name be sought for the faith which he henceforth held and practiced, he should probably be styled a pantheist, Never was there a more passionately devout worshipper of the beauty and holiness of life, and it was on this instinctive belief in the eternal goodness of nature that he based the optimistic creed which we shall find to be the central point of his philosophy. School-keeping being abandoned, the question of a profession, it may well be supposed, was still pressed on the youthful enthusiast by anxious relatives and friends. As we have already seen, pencil-making was the regular employment of the Thoreau family, and Henry, like his father, had acquired much skill in this handicraft, to which, for a time at any rate, he applied himself with great diligence. Mr. John Thoreau's secret consisted in his process for making the lead. The levigated plumbago was made into a paste by using fuller's earth and water. This ingredient was John Thoreau's device. The paste was rolled into sheets, cut into strips, and burned. Henry Thoreau made the levigated plumbago long after the pencil-making had ceased. The story goes that when he had entirely mastered the secrets of the trade, had obtained certificates from the recognized connoisseurs in Boston of the excellence of his workmanship, and was being congratulated by his friends on having now secured his way to fortune, he suddenly declared his intention of making not another pencil, since he would not do again what he had done once. True or not, the anecdote is happily characteristic of Thoreau's whimsical manner of expressing his most serious convictions. He had early discovered, 
by virtue of that keen insight which looked through the outer husk of conventionality that what is called profit in the bustle of commercial life is often far from being in the true sense profitable that the just claims of leisure are fully as important as the just claims of business and that the surest way of becoming rich is to need little in his own words a man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to let alone this being so why should he at the outset of his career pledge himself irrevocably after the manner of young men to some professional treadmill and for the sake of imaginary comforts sacrifice the substantial happiness of life no no he exclaims at a later period in reply to a well-meant suggestion that being without a definite profession he should engage in some commercial enterprise i am not without employment at this stage of the voyage to tell the truth i saw an advertisement for able-bodied seamen when i was a boy sauntering in my native port and as soon as i came of age i embarked this enterprise was none other than the study of wild nature his business was to be a professional walker or saunterer as he called it to spend at least one half of each day in the open air to watch the dawns and the sunsets to carry express what was in the wind to secure the latest news from forest and hilltop and to be self-appointed inspector of snowstorms and rainstorms these duties he subsequently declared that he had faithfully and regularly performed if his friends were disappointed he at least was not witness his own lines in his prayer great god i ask thee for no meaner pelf than that i may not disappoint myself that in my action i may soar as high as i can now discern with this clear eye and next in value which thy kindness lends that i may greatly disappoint my friends howe'er they think or hope that it may be they may not dream how thou'st distinguished me idleness however formed no part of thoreau's loitering he was not one who would permit himself to be dependent on the labor of others for he was well aware that one of the most significant questions as to a man's life is how he gets his living what proportion of his daily bread he earns by day labor or job work with his pen what he inherits what steals apart from the chosen occupation of his lifetime to which he devoted himself with unflagging industry and zeal he conscientiously supported himself by such occasional labor as his position required toiling from time to time to quote an illustration which he was fond of using like apollo in the service of admetus during the first ten years of his mature life that is from eighteen thirty seven 
1847, he earned what little he needed chiefly by manual work, his remarkable mechanical skill enabling him to do this with readiness. At the family business of pencil-making, in spite of his reported youthful abjuration, he worked at intervals during the greater portion of his life chiefly by way of rendering aid to his father and sisters. Land surveying was another employment in which he incidentally busied himself, and here too, owing to his adroitness in mensuration, and his intimate acquaintance with the Concord hillsides and woodlots, his services were highly valued. He also began at this time, though but slightly and tentatively at first, to give his attention to lecturing and literary work. His first lecture, the subject of which was Society, was delivered in April 1838 at the Concord Lyceum, where he afterwards lectured almost every year during the remainder of his life. His earliest poems were composed about 1837. While in residence at Harvard University, he had been a constant reader of verse, had mastered Chalmers' collection, and become acquainted with a quaint and old-fashioned school of poetry little known to his neighbors and contemporaries. The influence of Herbert, who was one of his early favorites, is very discernible in Thoreau's youthful poems, and Cowley, Davenant, and Dunn were most attentively studied by him, Quarles also at a somewhat later period. One of the most remarkable of these early poems is the piece entitled Sic Vita, of which the first stanza runs thus. I am a parcel of vain strivings tied by a chance bond together, dangling this way and that, their links were made so loose and wide, methinks for milder weather. This poem was written on a strip of paper which bound together a bunch of violets and so thrown in by Thoreau at the window of Mrs. Brown of Plymouth, a lady with whom he corresponded, and who was the means, as will be related, of his being introduced to Emerson. In 1837 a strong stimulus was given to his prose writing by the commencement of a regular series of diaries, the first of which, the Red Journal, ran on to some six hundred long pages in less than three years. Here he systematically noted his daily walks, adventures, and meditations, so that as the diary was revised and corrected with considerable minuteness, its author was able to draw direct from this literary store whenever he needed the materials for a poem or essay. This was the case with his contributions to the dial. When that transcendentalist organ was started in 1840 by certain of Thoreau's friends. At this time, there were living in the Thoreau's house at Concord a Mrs. Ward, widow of Colonel Joseph Ward, an officer who distinguished himself in the War of Independence, 
and their daughter, Miss Prudence Ward, who was referred to in an early passage of Thoreau's first volume, The Week, as the friend to whom the two voyagers sent news of the whereabouts of the rare hibiscus. The Wards and the Thoreaus had been old friends in Boston, when both families were living there, and Mrs. and Miss Ward had come to Concord in 1833, living first with Henry Thoreau's aunts, Jane and Maria Thoreau, and afterwards at the house of his father. This led to an incident which must have affected Thoreau very deeply at the time, and may possibly furnish a key to some otherwise obscure traits in his writings. His love for the girl, to whom his brother John is also said to have been attached. This was Ellen Sewell, a granddaughter of Mrs. Ward, and daughter of the Reverend E. Sewell, pastor of Situate. Her brother, then a boy of eleven, was at school at Concord under John and Henry Thoreau, and Ellen, a beautiful girl of seventeen, used to visit the Thoreaus in order to be near her relatives. These visits were much enjoyed by all the party, as the four younger members of the Thoreau household were then at home and many hours were pleasantly spent in long country walks or boating excursions, or in reading aloud and discussing, according to a custom then popular in Concord, some book in which they were interested. Hence it happened that the two brothers fell in love with Miss Sewell, and the story has been told that Henry, in a rare spirit of self-sacrifice, abstained from urging his own claims so as to avoid placing himself in any rivalry with his brother. There is, however, no reason to believe that the girl felt anything more than friendship for either of them, and shortly after John Thoreau's death she married the man of her choice, a clergyman with whom she lived happily to a good old age. Thoreau's elegic stanzas published in the Dial in 1840 under the title of Sympathy, are said on Emerson's authority to contain a reference under a thin disguise to his love for Ellen Sewell, the gentle boy of the poem being in truth a gentle girl. But according to another statement, the verses were dedicated to her brother, a boy of great promise and most lovable disposition, who bore a strong likeness to his sister. At any rate, it seems probable that Ellen Sewell was to some extent in Thoreau's mind when he wrote the poem Sympathy, and it is said that certain sonnets which he addressed to her will some day see the light. It is to be regretted that, from a false notion of propriety, such extreme reticence has so long been maintained concerning the story of Thoreau's love, and that facts which have much interest for his readers, and can cause no pain to his survivors, should even now be very imperfectly known. Lately, alas, I knew a gentle boy, whose features all were cast in virtue's mould as one she had designed for beauty's toy, 
but after manned him for her own stronghold. So I was taken unawares by this. I quite forgot my homage to confess. Yet now am forced to know, though hard it is, I might have loved him had I loved him less. Each moment as we nearer drew to each, a stern respect withheld us further yet, so that we seemed beyond each other's reach, and less acquainted than when first we met. Eternity may not the chance repeat, but I must tread my single way alone, in sad remembrance that we once did meet, and know that bliss irrevocably gone. To those who are acquainted with even the outline of this story of Thoreau's youthful passion, it becomes less difficult to understand the somewhat severe and remotely ideal tone that pervades his utterances on friendship and love. In the light of this new fact, says Mr. R. L. Stevenson in his essay on Thoreau, those pages, so seemingly cold, are seen to be alive with feeling. In this relation, we see that there is a peculiar appropriateness in the title which Emerson first applied to Thoreau, The Bachelor of Nature. End of chapter 2, part 1. Chapter 2, Part 2 of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Part 2 That Thoreau would have been willing to make any sacrifice of his personal happiness for the sake of his brother, we can well believe. For this brother was, as he has gratefully recorded, his good genius, a cheerful spirit by whose sunny presence he was ever invigorated and reassured. The two had been intimately associated from childhood, had worked together and played together, and roamed in company over all the hills and woodlands of Concord. It was with his brother John that Henry made, in 1839, that famous holiday trip on the waters of the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, an account of which was published ten years later in the week. Starting from Concord, on the last day of August, in their boat, the musketaquid, which they had made with their own hands in the spring, and taking with them their tent and guns and fishing tackle, and various provisions for the voyage, they journeyed down the slow-flowing Concord River till they came to its confluence with the larger and swifter Merrimack at Lowell. Thence they rode up the stream of the Merrimack, which, by comparison with that which they had left, seemed like a silver cascade which falls all the way from the white mountains to the sea until they arrived within a few miles of the new hampshire capital which bears the same name as their native village here they were compelled to leave their boat 
while they proceeded on foot along the bank of the narrowing stream and so traced the merrimack river to its source among the white mountains this was one of the first of the excursions to which thoreau was afterwards so much addicted and from which he often derived benefit both in health and enlarged experiences the boat in which the brothers made their voyage came subsequently into the possession of nathaniel hawthorne and is the one referred to in the introduction to the mosses from an old manse up to the date of which we are speaking thoreau had no very intimate companion except his brother john for he had made no close friends at college such as should last him for a lifetime one friendship however had already commenced which was of extreme importance to him both in itself and as being the means of introducing him to a larger circle of friends emerson as has been stated had settled in concord in eighteen thirty four and had at once manifested a kindly interest in the welfare of his young neighbor fifteen years his junior who was then studying at harvard university it was probably in eighteen thirty seven that their first personal meeting which could not long have been delayed was brought about through the agency of a lady who was a relative of emerson's family and a friend of the thoreaus the mrs brown to whom the stanzas headed sic vita were dedicated by their youthful author this lady having been informed by helen thoreau that there was a passage in her brother henry's diary which contained some ideas similar to those expressed by emerson in a recent lecture reported the matter to emerson and at his request brought henry thoreau to his house thus began an intercourse which continued unbroken during the rest of thoreau's life and was productive of much pleasure and profit on both sides to the elder man as well as to the younger i delight much in my young friend wrote emerson in eighteen thirty eight who seems to have as free and erect a mind as any i have ever met the value to thoreau of this admission into the emersonian circle exactly at the time when he was able to derive from it the most advantage and encouragement can hardly be overestimated for not only did it draw out the latent energies of his character but gave him an opportunity of expressing and publishing his thoughts a periodical which should be the accredited organ of the new ideas had for some time been in contemplation among the members of the transcendental symposium and in eighteen forty this project was carried into effect by the establishment of the quarterly dial the management of which was chiefly in the hands of emerson margaret fuller and george ripley its chances of success in the commercial sense were from the first very precarious for the number of original subscribers was small 
and a transcendental magazine was not likely to attain to much popularity but the dial was nevertheless the means of uniting the advocates of the new philosophy and of affording an opening for many writers of merit who had been hitherto unknown commencing in july eighteen forty it continued to be issued for four years the editorship during the first half of that time being entrusted to margaret fuller and george ripley while among the contributors were emerson alcott margaret fuller ripley theodore parker elizabeth peabody lowell thoreau ellery channing jones very w h channing and many others of more or less note each of the four volumes of the dial contained essays and poems from thoreau's pen his poem on sympathy in the first number being his earliest appearance in print this however was but his novitiate in literary work and several of his papers were rejected by margaret fuller during the term of her editorship with a candid criticism of what she judged to be their crudities and defects the presence of emerson at concord to which place he was bound by family ties and early associations four of his ancestors having been concord ministers and dr ripley being his step-grandfather was an event of no slight importance in the history of that somewhat secluded township after resigning his unitarian pastorate at boston in eighteen thirty two and spending the next year in england he had married his second wife miss lydia jackson and taken up his permanent residence at concord in eighteen thirty five where he was so clearly recognized as its most illustrious citizen that in eighteen thirty six when a monument was erected on the site of the battlefield of seventeen seventy five he was chosen to commemorate the occasion by those stanzas which have since become celebrated by the rude bridge that arched the flood their flag to april's breeze unfurled here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world through the rise of transcendentalism and the rapid spread of emerson's literary fame concord such is the attraction of genius became more and more a place of note and the resort of poets and philosophers it was the beginning of a new era for the quiet country town whose sturdy farmers were no longer to be its most prominent representatives but were to see their placid region invaded by a host of eager enthusiasts from every part of new england but of far more importance than these restless visitors was the permanent circle of friends and fellow-workers who as old dr ripley was passing away from his ministry were gathering round the acknowledged seer of concord prominent among these was amos bronson alcott 
who came to Concord with his wife and daughters in 1840. Tall, slender, white-headed, one of the gentlest and most lovable of men, and highly valued by Emerson as by all who knew him, smile though they might at his mysticism and lack of worldly prudence, for his lofty aims and disinterested zeal for humanity. Two years later came Nathaniel Hawthorne, a mystic of a gloomier type, who brought his bride, Sophia Peabody, to the seclusion of the old manse which had been Dr. Ripley's residence. Hawthorne's sister-in-law, the talented Elizabeth Peabody, had already settled in Concord, and Margaret Fuller, the Zenobia of his famous romance, plain indeed in her personal appearance as compared with that brilliant heroine, yet exercising no less marvellous fascination by her learning, genius, versatility, and rich sympathetic nature, was a frequent visitor for weeks together in the village where her sister, Ellen Fuller, who had married Ellery Channing the poet, was then living. Here, too, resided Elizabeth Hoare, another of those earnest, thoughtful women by whom the Concord Society was rendered remarkable. These, with Henry Thoreau, were the chief members of that transcendentalist company of which Concord was the meeting-place, and it cannot be doubted that the course of his speculations, however stubborn his individuality, must have been appreciably affected by his introduction into so distinguished a group. As early as 1840, he was fully admitted into the inner circle of which Emerson, Alcott, and Margaret Fuller were the chief representatives, and used to be present at Alcott's philosophical conversations held at Emerson's house, which were attended by many advanced thinkers from Boston, Cambridge, and other neighboring towns. Early in 1841, Thoreau was invited by Emerson to become an inmate of his household, and for two years from that time he lived under his friend's roof. He is to have his board, etc., for what labor he chooses to do, wrote Emerson, and he is thus far a great benefactor and physician to me, for he is an indefatigable and skillful laborer. Emerson's house was a square, substantial building on the Boston Road, at the outskirts of the village. The ground was low-lying, and at first somewhat bare and open, but some fruit-trees were planted by Thoreau, in which Emerson afterwards delighted. Emphatic testimony to Thoreau's helpfulness and kindness of heart has been borne by Emerson's son in some recently published memoirs of his father. Footnote, Emerson in Concord, 1889, by Dr. E. W. Emerson. End footnote. He was as little troublesome a member of the household with his habits of plain living and high thinking, as could well have been, and in the constant absences of the master of the house in his lecturing trips, 
the presence there of such a friendly and sturdy inmate was a great comfort he was handy with tools and there was no limit to his usefulness and ingenuity about the house and garden that emerson at times felt a little out of sympathy with the rather pugnacious and contradictory temperament of his young friend as shown in his suggestive remark thoreau is with difficulty sweet is probable enough and does not necessarily conflict with the above statement it appears that john thoreau henry's brother was also intimate with emerson's family at this time and was in the habit of performing similar friendly services on one occasion he fixed a bluebird's box on emerson's barn a gift which remained for years as emerson notes with every summer a melodious family in it adjoining the place and singing his praises it was by john thoreau's arrangement too that a daguerreotype portrait was taken of little waldo emerson only a few months before the child's death thoreau's friendship with alcott though less intimate than with emerson was very constant and sincere and alcott himself has borne grateful testimony to the worth of thoreau as a friend margaret fuller whose connection with the dial brought her into association and correspondence with thoreau also seems to have felt considerable interest in his character at this time and expressed herself in her letters with her wonted candor and freedom in rejecting some verses which thoreau had offered for publication she thus sketches the outlines as they appear to her of his personality he is healthful rare of open eye ready hand and noble scope he sets no limit to his life nor to the invasions of nature he is not wilfully pragmatical cautious ascetic or fantastical but he is as yet a somewhat bare hill which the warm gales of spring have not visited yet what could a companion do at present unless to tame the guardian of the alps too early leave him at peace amid his native snows he is friendly he will find the generous office that shall educate him it is not a soil for the citron and the rose but for the whortleberry the pine or the heather in this same year thoreau made another acquaintance which soon ripened into the warmest and most intimate friendship of his life ellery channing the nephew of the great unitarian minister dr w e channing and the brother-in-law of margaret fuller came to concord in eighteen forty one and lived for a time in a cottage near emerson's house he was a poet and a man of genius though of so whimsical moody and unstable a character that he never won the popularity which his friends were constantly anticipating for him could he have drawn out that virgin gold says hawthorne of channing's talent 
and stamped it with the mint mark that alone gives currency, the world might have had the profit and he the fame. Between him and Thoreau, whose junior he was by one year, there was quickly established a strong bond of sympathy and mutual understanding, which perhaps originated in the fact that each stood in a position of antagonism towards the canons of society. Channing, who was as impatient of routine as Thoreau himself, had not graduated at the university, and while his new friend had been keeping school at Concord, he had been living in a log hut in the wilds of Illinois. In his unwearying devotion to nature and natural scenery, his tastes exactly coincided with Thoreau's, and many were the rambling walks and talks they had together at all hours and seasons, while the good folk of Concord were intent on their more sober business. It was well for Henry Thoreau that at this period of his early manhood he had formed these lasting friendships with such men as Emerson, Alcott, and Channing, for a blow was impending which might otherwise have left him lonely and friendless on the very threshold of active life. We have seen how his natural self-control and fortitude of character enabled him to perform an act of self-renunciation for the sake of the brother to whom he was so closely attached. He was now to be subjected to a still severer trial by the unexpected death of the companion of his youthful days. In February 1842, John Thoreau died from lockjaw, caused by an injury done to his hand in shaving, a death so sudden and painful that his brother could rarely endure to hear mention of it in afterlife, and is said to have turned pale and faint when narrating the circumstances to a friend more than twelve years later. After the sad and unfortunate death of his brother, says one who knew them both, he seemed to have no earthly companion in whom he could confide and love. He appeared indifferent to all about him, and sometimes I thought he even hated himself. When he visited Cohasset in 1849, and witnessed a terrible death scene after the shipwreck of an Irish brig, he remarked that if he had found one body cast upon the beach in some lonely place, it would have affected him more. A man, he adds, can attend but one funeral in the course of his life, can behold but one corpse, in which saying there is a reference to his own bereavement. It is noticeable that in his week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, his brother, though necessarily often alluded to, is not once mentioned by name. For this heavy blow, Thoreau sought and found the needed comfort and that strong belief in the immutable goodness of nature which was the basis of his whole intellectual creed. I find these things, he wrote, more strange than sad to me 
what right have I to grieve, who have not ceased to wonder? He had lost the loved companion of his daily pilgrimage, but one effect of his brother's death was to incline him still more strongly towards a close study of nature and the transcendental manner of thought. He might indeed have been in danger of lapsing into that vague mysticism which was the besetting weakness of some of the transcendentalists, had it not been for the sound, practical frame of mind which was as much a part of him as his idealism. It was this solid element of good sense that kept the balance in his character— sore as he might in his transcendental reveries, and scoff as he might at the absurdities of conventional habit, he never lost hold on the simple essential facts of everyday life. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 After his brother's death in 1842, Thoreau continued to live in Emerson's house, the bereavement which each of the two friends had recently undergone, for little Waldo, Emerson's favorite child, had died early in the same year being doubtless instrumental in bringing them more closely together. Thoreau's regard for Emerson and Mrs. Emerson was very deep, and it was natural that a young man, even when possessed of Thoreau's strength of character, should be lastingly influenced by so commanding a personality as Emerson's. It has been remarked by several of those who knew both men, that Thoreau unconsciously caught certain of the traits of Emerson's voice and expression, and even of his personal appearance, that he deliberately imitated Emerson, is declared on the best authority to be an idle and untenable assertion. The following account of Thoreau's receptivity in this respect is given by one of his college classmates, whom I have already quoted. Not long after I happened to meet Thoreau in Mr. Emerson's study at Concord, the first time we had come together after leaving college, I was quite startled by the transformation that had taken place in him. His short figure and general cast of countenance were of course unchanged, but in his manners, in the tones of his voice, in the modes of expression, even in the hesitations and pauses of his speech, he had become the counterpart of Mr. Emerson. Thoreau's college voice bore no resemblance to Mr. Emerson's, and was so familiar to my ear that I could have readily identified him by it in the dark. I was so much struck by the change that I took the opportunity, as they sat near together talking, of listening with closed eyes, and I was unable to determine with certainty which was speaking. 
I do not know to what subtle influences to ascribe it, but after conversing with Mr. Emerson for even a brief time, I always found myself able and inclined to adopt his voice and manner of speaking. Footnote. Ralph Waldo Emerson by Rev. D. G. Haskins. End footnote. The change noticed in Thoreau was not due only to the stimulating influence of Emerson's personality, though that doubtless was the immediate means of affecting his awakening. Underneath the sluggish and torpid demeanor of his life at the university, there had been developing, as his schoolmates afterwards recognized, the strong, stern qualities which were destined to make his character remarkable, and these had now been called into full play both by the natural growth of his mind and by the opportunities afforded in the brilliant circle of which he was a member. In later years, says John Weiss, who knew him well at Harvard, his chin and mouth grew firmer as his resolute and audacious opinions developed, the eyes twinkled with the latent humor of his criticisms of society. It was a veritable transformation, an awakening of the dormant intellectual fire, and it has been ingeniously suggested that the transformation of Donatello in Hawthorne's novel may have been founded in the first place on this fact in the life of Thoreau. So, too, with regard to his social and ethical opinions. It would have been strange if the youth of twenty-five had not been in some degree affected and influenced by the philosopher of forty. But the freshness and originality of his genius, in all essential respects, is none the less incontestable. Thoreau, in fact, was one of the very few men by whom Emerson was himself in some degree impressed. We are told by Dr. E. W. Emerson that his father delighted in being led to the very inner shrines of the wood-god by this man, clear-eyed and true and stern enough to be trusted with their secrets and there is no doubt that thoreau influenced him perceptibly in the direction of a more diligent and minute study of nature and a simpler and austerer mode of life he differed in one important respect both from emerson and from the other members of the emersonian circle of transcendentalists in his aboriginal hardihood and vigor to them, Concord was a suitable place of adoption. To him, it was the place of his birth. The simplicity of living, personal independence, and intimacy with wild nature, which to the others involved more or less a deliberate effort, were in his case an innate and unconscious instinct. With Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was the latest addition to the Society of Concord, Thoreau had perhaps little in common except his friendship with Ellery Channing, 
though courteous relations seemed to have subsisted between them. Some of the references to Thoreau in Hawthorne's journal have a touch of the petulance and harshness of judgment to which Hawthorne was rather prone when recording his impressions of his acquaintances. But on the whole, he speaks of Thoreau with unusual admiration and respect. Mr. Thoreau dined with us yesterday, he writes on the 1st of September, 1842. He is a singular character, a young man with much of wild original nature still remaining in him, and so far as he is sophisticated, it is in a way and method of his own. He is as ugly as sin, long-nosed, queer-mouthed, and with uncouth and somewhat rustic though courteous manners corresponding very well with such an exterior but his ugliness is of an honest and agreeable fashion, and becomes him much better than beauty. No reliance is to be placed in some further remarks of Hawthorne's to the effect that Thoreau's sojourn in Emerson's household had been burdensome to his host, for all the facts point strongly in the other direction. On another occasion, we learn that Thoreau rode Hawthorne on the Concord River in a boat built and used by himself and his brother in their week's excursion to the Merrimack in 1839, and Hawthorne, delighted at Thoreau's skill in paddling, decided to purchase the boat and change its name from Musketaquid to Pond Lily. But the art of managing a canoe, which Thoreau had learnt from some Indians who had visited Concord a few years previously, was not to be acquired in a day. Mr. Thoreau had assured me, writes Hawthorne plaintively, that it was only necessary to will the boat to go in any particular direction, and she would immediately take that course as if imbued with the spirit of the steersman. It may be so with him, but it is certainly not so with me. The difficulty once mastered, Hawthorne took much pleasure in his new purchase, and seems to have been inspired by something of Thoreau's enthusiasm for the wildness of open-air life. Oh, that I could run wild, he exclaims, when recording his first successful voyage in the pond lily, that is, that I could put myself in a true relation with nature, and be on friendly terms with all congenial elements. By the middle of 1842, the dial, which had never been prosperous from a pecuniary point of view, was in severe straits, and the editorship, having been resigned by Margaret Fuller, was undertaken by Emerson himself, in which work he was largely assisted by Thoreau, who was then living in his house. It is said that Thoreau not only canvassed for new subscribers, read proof-sheets, and selected passages from the ethnical scriptures of the oriental philosophers which formed one of the features of the dial under emerson's management 
but also acted as sole editor on one or two occasions during his friend's absence. Footnote. Volume 3, number 3, is said to have been edited by Thoreau. End footnote. A large number of Thoreau's writings were inserted by Emerson, whose estimate of his ability was far higher than that held by Margaret Fuller, so that the young author was now becoming recognized as one of the leaders of transcendental thought. The dial for July 1842 contained his delightful essay on the natural history of Massachusetts, to which Emerson prefixed an introductory note in which he hinted that Isaac Walton and White of Selborne had now a worthy successor. The Winter Walk, another essay of the same character and of almost equal merit, appeared in the dial a year later. In July 1842, Thoreau, accompanied by a friend, went on a three-days excursion to Wachusett, a mountain to the west of Concord, the Blue Wall, he calls it, which bounds the western horizon, which, from its isolated position, forms a conspicuous feature in the landscape and is familiar by name to all readers of his writings. More than once he expresses a feeling of sympathy with this solitary height. But special I remember thee, Wachusett, who, like me, standest alone without society. His account of the walk, and how they camped a night on the mountain, was published the following year in the Boston Miscellany, under the title of A Walk to Wachusett. Wachusett, he wrote, in describing the view from the summit, is, in fact, the observatory of the state. There lay Massachusetts, spread out before us in length and breadth like a map. Thoreau's love of mountains is exemplified in many passages of his diary, and the occasional excursions which he made to the lofty outlying ranges visible from the Concord Hills formed some of the most pleasing episodes in his life. A mountain chain, he says, determines many things for the statesman and philosopher, the improvements of civilization rather creep along its sides than cross its summit. How often is it a barrier to prejudice and fanaticism? In passing over these heights of land, through their thin atmosphere, the follies of the plain are refined and purified, and as many species of plants do not scale their summits, so many species of folly, no doubt, do not cross the Alleghenies. The Rose predilection for solitude and indifference or dislike to society in the ordinary sense of the word may be gathered from a good deal of what has already been related of him. There was an aloofness and reserve in his nature which, together with his stern and lofty ideals, made him appear at times somewhat unbending and unapproachable. 
it was no question of being better or worse than the generality of men he was different and the sympathy which he could not find in civilized man he sought in wild nature though well aware that nature herself is nothing except in her relation to man i feel he said that my life is very homely my pleasures very cheap joy and sorrow success and failure grandeur and meanness and indeed most words in the english language do not mean for me what they do for my neighbors i see that my neighbors look with compassion on me that they think it is a mean and unfortunate destiny which makes me to walk in these fields and woods so much and sail on this river alone but so long as i find here the only real elysium i cannot hesitate in my choice to say as is often said that thoreau was unsocial is however incorrect except in a limited and qualified degree he enjoyed common people says channing he relished strong acrid characters the rough honest farmers of concord were his especial favorites and in their company he could show plenty of that good fellowship of which he appeared under some conditions to be deficient the impression which he left on his friends in emerson's household after his two years residence there was a wholly agreeable one he was by no means unsocial says dr e w emerson but a kindly and affectionate person especially to children whom he could endlessly amuse and charm in most novel and healthful ways with grown persons he had tact and high courtesy though with reserve but folly or pretense or cant or subserviency excited his formidable attack early in eighteen forty three thoreau ceased to live in emerson's house having accepted the offer of a tutorship in the family of judge emerson the brother of the concord philosopher who was then living in staten island near new york before leaving concord to take up this duty he wrote as follows to emerson who was lecturing at new york at the end of this strange letter i will not write what alone i had to say to thank you and mrs emerson for your long kindness to me it would be more ungrateful than my constant thought i have been your pensioner for nearly two years and still left free as the sky it has been as free a gift as the sun or the summer though i have sometimes molested you with my mean acceptance of it i who have failed to render even those slight services of the hand which would have been for a sign at least and by the fault of my nature have failed of many better and higher services but i will trouble you no more with this but for once thank you and heaven it is probable that some stanzas of thoreau's entitled the departure 
were written about this time, when he had just left with regret the friends whose house had for two years been his home. Several months were spent by Thoreau in Staten Island. Here, in his spare hours during the spring and summer of 1843, he continued his walking excursions as regularly as at Concord, and was frequently mistaken by the inhabitants for a busy surveyor, who was studying every yard of the ground with a view to some extensive speculation. From an old ruined fort he used to watch the emigrant vessels pass up the narrow channel from the wide outer bay and go on their course to New York, or, as the case might be, remain in quarantine at Staten Island, when the passengers would be allowed to go ashore and refresh themselves on that artificial piece of the land of liberty. From the low hills in the interior of the island, among the homesteads where the Huguenots had been the first settlers, he could see the long procession of outgoing ships stretching far as the eye could reach, with stately march and silken sails, as he describes it. At other times he roamed along the desolate sandy shore, where packs of half-wild dogs were on the lookout for carcasses of horses or oxen washed up by the tide. An island, he says, in his week, always pleases my imagination even the smallest, as a continent and integral portion of the globe. I have a fancy for building my hut on one, even a bare grassy isle, which I can see entirely over at a glance, has some undefined and mysterious charms for me. It was at Staten Island that Thoreau wrote those beautiful and highly characteristic stanzas on the sea. My life is like a stroll upon the beach, as near the ocean's edge as I can go. My tardy steps its waves sometimes o'er reach, sometimes I stay to let them overflow. My sole employment tis, and scrupulous care, to place my gains beyond the reach of tides each smoother pebble and each shell more rare which ocean kindly to my hand confides i have but few companions on the shore they scorn the strand who sail upon the sea yet oft i think the ocean they've sailed o'er is deeper known upon the strand to me the middle sea contains no crimson dulse its deeper waves cast up no pearls to view along the shore my hand is on its pulse and i converse with many a shipwrecked crew during the sojourn in staten island thoreau was frequently in new york where he made the acquaintance of w h channing edward palmer Lucretia Mott, Henry James, Horace Greeley, and other persons of note. In this city, he wrote to his sister on 21st July, I have seen, since I last wrote, 
W. H. Channing, at whose house in 15th Street I spent a few pleasant hours discussing the all-absorbing question, what to do for the race. Also Horace Greeley, editor of the Tribune, who is cheerfully in earnest at his office of all work, a hardy New Hampshire boy as one could wish to meet, and says, now be neighborly. With Greeley, who was at this time preaching furrierism in the New York Tribune, in conjunction with Margaret Fuller and George Ripley, Thoreau established a firm friendship, and it will be seen that Greeley was able, a few years later, to render him valuable service in securing publication for his writings. In a letter addressed to Emerson from Staten Island, 23rd of May, 1843, Thoreau thus relates his impressions of New York. You must not count much upon what I can do or learn in New York. Everything there disappoints me, but the crowd, rather. I was disappointed with the rest before I came. I have no eyes for their churches and what else they have to brag of. Though I know but little about Boston, yet what attracts me in a quiet way seems much meaner and more pretending than there. Libraries, pictures, and faces in the street. You don't know where any respectability inhabits. The crowd is something new and to be attended to. It is worth a thousand Trinity churches and exchanges while it is looking at them, and it will run over them and trample them underfoot. There are two things I hear and am aware I live in the neighborhood of, the roar of the sea and the hum of the city. Though literary work had not yet come to be regarded by Thoreau as his principal employment, his pen was not idle during his visit to Staten Island. He wrote some articles for the Democratic Review and Dial, and made some translations from the Greek of Aeschylus and Pindar. The Dial, in spite of the fact that its contributors wrote gratuitously, was unable to pay its way and the difficulties in which it was already involved led to its discontinuance in the spring of 1844. But although the transcendentalist organ thus failed to win the necessary public support, transcendentalism as a movement was now in the heyday of its vigor. It was, as we have seen, part of the creed that every one should labor with his own hands, and that men should endeavor to revert, as much as possible, from an artificial to a simple mode of living. When these thoughts began to be embodied in deeds, the movement took two directions, the one towards collective action and the other towards individualism. It was in reference to the former that Emerson wrote to Carlyle in 1840, We are all a little wild with numberless projects of social reform. Not a reading man, but has a draft of a new community in his waistcoat pocket. 
the most important of such communal projects was the famous brook farm experiment which was commenced in the spring of eighteen forty one and came to an end in eighteen forty seven on which the subject the opinion of the chief transcendentalists was divided margaret fuller and george ripley joining in the enterprise while emerson alcott and thoreau stood aloof the spread of furrierism in new england during these same years had led to the establishment of phalansteries in which horace greeley and w h channing took a leading part yet another attempt at transcendental colonization was that made by alcott and one or two friends in eighteen forty three on an estate near harvard which was purchased by them and named fruitlands this small colony to which thoreau paid a visit though he declined the offer of membership was like most of the rest a failure and in less than a year alcott gave it up and returned to concord of the second or individualist method of practicing the return to nature thoreau himself was destined to be the most successful exponent his utter distrust of communities is very characteristic of his independent and self-assertive temperament as for these communities he wrote in his journal i think i had rather keep bachelor's hall in hell than go to board in heaven but though he had no intention of sacrificing one iota of his individuality by joining a community at brook farm or elsewhere he had for some time been considering the feasibility of putting his principles into practice by a temporary and tentative withdrawal from the society of his fellow townsmen a plan which was possibly suggested to him by his friend Stearns Wheeler, who lived for some months, in 1841 or 1842, in a hut near Flint's Pond, where he was visited by Thoreau. This desire appears in his journal as early as 1841. "'I want to go soon and live away by the pond,' he wrote on December 24th, where I shall hear only the wind whispering among the reeds. It will be success if I shall have left myself behind. But my friends ask what I will do when I get there. Will it not be employment enough to watch the progress of the seasons? A couple of months before the date of this entry, Margaret Fuller had written to Thoreau, let me know whether you go to the lonely hut and write to me about shakespeare if you read him there it has already been mentioned that walden pond was associated with his earliest reminiscences as a child he had thought he would like to live there and as a boy he had been accustomed to come to its shores on dark nights and fish for the pouts which were supposed to be attracted by the glare of a fire lit close to the water's edge, or, on a summer morning, to sit and muse for hours in his boat as it drifted where the wind took it. There was, however, another spot 
with which he was also familiar, which came very near being the scene of his projected hermitage. In his youthful voyages up the Concord River, he had noticed, at a distance of about two miles from the village, an old-fashioned ruinous farmhouse, concealed behind a dense grove of red maples, through which was heard the barking of the house-dog. This was the Hollowell Farm, the seclusion of which, if we may trust a passage in Walden, so tempted Thoreau that at some point in his early manhood he actually agreed to become its possessor. But before the purchase was effected and the contract signed, the owner of the place changed his mind and had no difficulty in inducing Thoreau to release him from the bargain. We may surmise that in 1844, after the conclusion of his educational engagement in Staten Island, he was still more decidedly bent on putting his favorite plan into execution, and that his thoughts now reverted to Walden Woods as the place most suitable for his purpose. Alcott's experiment at Fruitlands, although unsuccessful in a pecuniary sense, had doubtless stimulated Thoreau's inclination to a forest life, and Emerson himself, while skeptical, in the main, as to the wisdom of such enterprises, had bought land on both sides of Walden Pond with the idea of building a summer house. Ellery Channing, who in his youth had made trial of a rough backwoods life, was of course taken into his friend's confidences respecting this retirement to the woods. "'I see nothing for you in this earth,' he wrote in 1845, "'but that field which I once christened Briars. "'Go out upon that, build yourself a hut, "'and there begin the grand process of devouring yourself alive.' I see no alternative, no other hope for you. Eat yourself up. You will eat nobody else, nor anything else. Encouraged by these exhortations, and firmly trusting the promptings of his own destiny, Thoreau determined in the spring of 1845, being now in his twenty-eighth year, to build himself a hut on the shore of Walden Pond, and there live for such time, and in such a manner, as might best conduce to his intellectual and spiritual advantage. The objects of his retirement have been so often misunderstood that they will bear repetition in his own words. Finding that my fellow citizens were not likely to offer me any room in the courthouse, or any curacy or living anywhere else, but that I must shift for myself, I turned my face more exclusively than ever towards the woods where I was better known. I determined to go into business at once, and not wait to acquire the usual capital using such slender means as I had already got. My purpose in going to Walden Pond was not to live cheaply, nor to live dearly there, 
but to transact some private business with the fewest obstacles. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life, living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then, to get the whole and genuine meanness of it, and publish its meanness to the world, or if it were sublime, to know it by experience, and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. Walden was, in fact, too thorough what Brook Farm was to other of the transcendentalists, a retreat suitable for philosophic meditation and the practice of a simpler, hardier, and healthier life. End of chapter 3